brings magnitude and proper honor to His name, but also encourages us in our walk with Him day by day. We have been involved on Sunday evenings for several weeks now, a study of the book of Revelation, the 66th and final book in the Bible. And as we have journeyed our way through that book until this point, we have learned a number of powerful lessons, no doubt the centerpiece of which has been the central attitude, the thought of the victory that God has already enjoyed and will, of course, continue to enjoy, and you and I can take advantage of that same as we look forward to that great day of being with Him forever. We have arrived this evening at the 16th chapter of that book. I would invite you to turn with me to Revelation 16 this evening as we will look at several of the opening verses of that chapter. By way of introduction, might it be fair to at least briefly recollect some of those major lessons from last Lord's Day evening since they will lead us so powerfully into the lesson for, for tonight. In Revelation 14 and 15, we immediately recall the two-sided centerpiece of those chapters. On the one hand was the great victory and the powerful picture it was to see the redeemed, if you will, there standing beside the glassy sea with the great throne of God just in the distance. The greatness of their journey almost departed and over and almost with the Lord Himself. Oh, what a picture it was. All the while, as we saw that, we noticed that they were singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Those tremendous songs of victory that were theirs to appreciate, for they had overcome Satan, self, and sin, and were almost at the very pinnacle of their journey, the very thing for which they so much desired. But on the other hand, we also saw the picture of those that were the very ones reaping the undiluted wrath of God, inasmuch as they had an eternal torment ahead of them. You see, as we looked at both of them, we came to realize that the love of God ever powerfully observed on the one hand, His justice, however, just as powerfully seen on the other. In fact, as we turn the page into Revelation 16 tonight, we will in fact follow up on that latter idea by noting that here we also saw that there were seven bowls, seven, seven vials full of the wrath of God, we saw those in both Revelation 15.1 and Revelation 15.8. And in fact, the very last thought that was shared with us in Revelation 15.8, that no man could enter the temple until the seven vials were fulfilled. And so tonight, without any hesitation, we'll now begin to see those seven vials poured out upon earth. And tonight, we'll set before us the goal of looking at the first four of them, trying to appreciate the thoroughness to be seen in them. At this point, would you read with me Revelation 16, verse 1, and we'll use that as the next idea to continue in our lesson this evening, the opening verse of Revelation 16. And I heard a great voice out of the temple, saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. With that read, we learn an immediately impressive lesson. The lesson namely as follows that these particular events that we are now to discuss and to see with the pouring out of these vials was the very thought that came from God Himself. Humankind did not dream up the consequences, the facts related to the pouring out of these vials. Again, it says the voice was heard out of the temple. 
as God thus approved and divinely gave His impression toward the pouring out of these vials, the things brought forth were in accordance to His will. And as they were brought forth, they brought about, of course, tremendous consequences upon earth. But the destruction, the devastation to be seen in them was a part of the eternal plan and power of the God of heaven. We've often made note, haven't we, that as the matters take place upon this earth, they quickly remind us of powerful events such as Daniel. For in Daniel chapter 4, verse 25, we notice again that the God of heaven rules and reigns in the kingdoms of men. It was so in Daniel's age, and of course it is so in the Revelation age, and it continues so even until our day. But to note that point, let us learn another very, rather valiant lesson from chapter 15. What is it that's contained in these bowls? We saw a picture last Lord's Day evening of those seven angels each carrying a bowl. Now notice that the word bowl is the translation of the word vile, if you will. But might we not notice that there's something else described in Revelation 15.1 and Revelation 15.8 contained in those bowls or vials? Notice with me again in Revelation 15.1, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having these seven last plagues. And then in verse number 8, final phrase of that verse, Till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. That which is contained in these bowls is a plague. And thus in total there are seven of them. And almost immediately we gain a rather dramatic impression. Plague, the word thereof, brings to mind that which is devastating and bad. Like for example, several hundred years ago, that plague that ravaged Europe, the bubonic plague, sometimes called the Black Death, well it was a plague in which men and women, boys and girls, were led to their deaths in tremendously great numbers. Now as you and I think about the word plague, the Bible also employs that word on a number of occasions, and of course the things related to it are indeed bad from the human perspective. Disease and persecution, affliction and suffering. We shall be interested to know what is it that corresponds and is brought with these seven plagues. Perhaps finally, might we notice that in the very mention of the word plague, that should quickly race in our mind to the scene in the book of Exodus, for there we find the first episode of the major character of plagues in all of the Word of God. Isn't it fascinating to remember that on that occasion, the God of heaven commissioned His servant Moses, along of course with Aaron his spokesman, and to the nation of Egypt they went with a mission of bringing His people out of Egyptian captivity. The means by which God brought that about were those ten plagues. As those plagues were brought forth on the Egyptians, might we remember that there was a dramatic fact that we sometimes might be tempted to forget. Who were those that were primarily the ones that received those plagues? Who were the primary ones that suffered so mightily beneath them? Is it not the case that we can quickly remember that it was the Egyptians? It is true that the first couple of those plagues, the first few of them in fact, were such that the Israelites also appeared to suffer beneath them. However, we notice a dramatic difference rather soon in the listing of those plagues, for it soon came to be that only the Egyptians were suffering beneath them. The Israelites were exempt from them. 
For instance, when it came to the moraine of beasts and when it came to the boils and blains upon men, none of the Israelites were afflicted with that. And when it came to the character associated with some of the others, such as the darkness, it's still an amazing thing to you and me, but it was completely dark in the land of Egypt. But in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, it was light. Can we not then learn one dramatic thing? These plagues were reserved then for those that were opposed to the character of God and the nature of His will. And the Israelites, those who were aware of God and able to appreciate His history and the fact that He was to bless them, they were exempt from usually, typically that is to say, the majority of those plagues. By the same token, as we made note of the word plagues, there's another fact that seems so very interesting as it relates to these plagues found in Revelation 16. And it takes us back only a few chapters in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 8, we studied seven trumpet judgments. When the angels blew the various trumpets and seven of them came in order, and we learned historically the significance of them, it is not difficult to see an association with these plagues in this chapter. There seems to be a correspondence. Thus, if we recall the lessons we learned in Revelation 8, that may be of great benefit to us as we seek to appreciate the lessons to be learned in Revelation 16. With that said, might we remember the major lessons we did learn without rehearsing the entirety of the seven trumpet judgments. On that occasion, we noticed that those seven trumpet judgments were the very predictive power of the prophecy of God relating to the overthrow of the Roman regime and all that was associated with it. Now, primarily at that, at that time, the emphasis was upon the political aspect of those that were persecuting God's people. Thus, it was the political aspect of the Roman Empire. Though at the time that the Revelation was written, they were so harshly and oppressively persecuting God's people. They were often putting them to death merely because they were Christians. Through his writer John, God encouraged them to realize there's coming a day when these who are persecuting you now will also be defeated by me because of their failure to observe and failure to recognize the power in my laws and in my morality. In 476 A.D., the Western Roman Empire was crushed and fell. We noted that that was associated with a couple of those trumpet judgments. Then, there was another one, though, when we arrived at the seventh trumpet judgment. We remember that it related to the fall of the Eastern Roman Empire, in which Constantinople ultimately, too, met its own defeat in 1453 A.D. And thus, in the trumpet judgments, we appreciated the fact that God did ultimately predict, and powerfully so, that that Roman Empire would be defeated and that they would no longer be able to oppress the people of God in a physical way as they had before. I wonder what then might be the lesson from Revelation 16. What power might here be under discussion that it too, as we see its overthrow, would lead us to appreciate that again, the greatness of God is leading through the overthrow of this mighty power. Well, I've listed some thoughts on that particular screen for us to consider. And as the details are therein prescribed, might we consider them in the following way. This other power that's under discussion here is a power that in fact is an influence described from Revelation 13 up until now. 
In Revelation 13, we saw two beasts. There was a sea beast and there was a land beast. That sea beast, first of all, was one that directly had the power of the devil, for in fact the dragon gave him his power. But we immediately re recognized that in the light of that beast, we attempted to identify and discover that it was the Roman Empire, in fact. But there was a second beast, that land beast. That too was another powerful beast, and its job and mission was to encourage the worship of the first beast. And oh, how effectively it accomplished it. As we identified it, we noted then it was that cult of emperor worship, that false worship that the Roman Empire encouraged and those who in fact would bow to that not only would find pleasure and favorability in the Roman Empire, they would however distance themselves from the faithfulness and truthfulness of God. In light of that, let's put one other piece to the puzzle together and we will be ready then to look into Revelation 16. That other piece of the puzzle, what about the time frame? When are these plagues to be poured forth? We remember that in Revelation 11 and 13, there was mention made of that time period called 42 months, 1,260 days, or time, times, and half a time. All of them were referring to the same time frame. And it would be that time when this particular falseness would in fact be so rampant and it would be abundant. But God had promised in Revelation 11 that there would come a time when that overthrow would occur of that particular power. We've now arrived at that time. The seven plagues seem to correspond to a time frame following the 1,260 days, following the time, times and a half a time, following the 42 months. For during that period, we remember that the two candlesticks in Revelation 11 were those that were the witnesses for God. But in this chapter, that seems to now have been passed. Thus, that brings us to a time following perhaps 1790 A.D. For we learn that those other events took us up to about that time frame. For remember, the Reformation movement was included in Revelation 11. And what's more... In considering those events, we are now looking for things that are a bit more recent to what we've been looking at previously. What might these things be? What other power could possibly be under discussion? If the Roman Empire has already been crushed in 1453, and if the cult of emperor worship long since vanished with it, what other power lingering from the influence of ancient Rome could still be that which is under discussion? it would seem that there is one principal suggestion that might be made. We, of course, not only will see that suggestion in this chapter, but it will carry us all the way to Revelation 18 before we ultimately see the completion of it. What is that influence? What is still influential and powerful till this day that had its beginnings in the days of the Roman Empire? It's not a political force, but it's a religious one. It's one in which it has overcome a vast majority of the world with which we're aware. And that influence is still greatly and profoundly appreciated. It would seem that Revelation 16 begins our discussion in such great character of the nature of Roman Catholicism. It had its beginnings in the days of the Roman Empire. It reached its height following the time that Rome actually itself was crushed politically. And that influence has, of course, continued profoundly around the world until this day. 
multiplied millions, except the Pope is authoritative. In fact, respect not only him, but the edicts which he presents forth. And all the while, though, as we're interested in learning about the nature of that, let us look at the plagues. See what we may appreciate about the character of perhaps an initial defeat of that and ask ourselves what may be learned for you and me today concerning that very fact. I've listed on the screen as well some other places in the New Testament where references to this very idea are also to be found. The two most notable ones are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 1 Timothy chapter 4. In our study on Wednesday evening, as we continue to look at the Reformation and Restoration movements, we'll have much to say to fill in the details, to notice exactly what Paul did state in 2 Thessalonians 2, and how he stated it also in 1 Timothy 4, and how those harmonize so interestingly with the thoughts that we're seeing tonight in Revelation 16. At this point, let us then turn and read Revelation chapter 16, verses 1 through 9, and see if we can appreciate more fully the nature of the first four of these plagues. Revelation 16, again, verses 1 through 9. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men, which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which had power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. It is a rather intriguing scene to attempt to visualize what we have just read, these opening nine verses of this chapter. But as we noted in verse number one, this was in fact the very nature that God gave that commandment for these angels to go and pour out these vials. And thus again, that which took place was in part related to his will and the accomplishment thereof. But as we look more interestingly at verse number two, again, the first angel poured out his vial, his bowl, and the plague that accompanied it is, is described in these words. And there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. A noisome and grievous sore. I'd ask that you notice with me, first of all, that that particular language in the Greek text actually means the following. It is a foul and bothersome sore. That word foul, of course, indicates when used in that way that it has a rather strong sense of power and that which is disgusting. That which causes one to appreciate the very serious and ulcerous character of something. 
a foul thing. But notice also in the description of it, this noisome and grievous sore. That in our recollection perhaps takes us back to the sixth of the plagues that were poured out upon Egypt in the long distant past. The sixth of the plagues, remember, associated itself to boils and blains upon men and upon the nature of those Egyptians at that time. Well, we notice here that those boils and blains upon men, on men then also were rather sickening sores as they were corrupted with them from the soles of their feet to the tips of their head. Well, here we notice that this one was poured out too, but who was it it was poured out upon? It wasn't just everybody in Revelation 16 too. Rather, it was those who had the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. Immediately, we might note rather powerfully that those recipients of it were those again who had that mark of the beast that we had identified in Revelation 13. Again, what was that mark? In that day, it was that mark given to those who bowed the knee to that cult of emperor worship, to those who chose rather to buy and sell and get gain and thus compromise the purity of their truth and worship to God. We quickly appreciated that even you and I today could, of course, be guilty of the same when we choose rather to make character of and make association with the things of the world for material and personal gain rather than the truth of God. All the while, this plague was poured out upon them and also upon those which worshipped His image. Maybe in addition, we could recall the first of the trumpet judgments. In Revelation 8, that first trumpet judgment was related to what? I reminded us there in that scene of Revelation 8 that it had to do with the pouring out of hail and fire, mixed with blood, by the way, and that was such that one-third of the trees on the earth were burned, as well as all the grass. We learned then that, again, that had a rather dramatic lesson in relation to at least a portion of the fall of that Roman Empire. What about the fall of this mighty, continuing, influential, religious power from Rome? What might the explanation or our thinking be? We noted earlier that if our time frame is correct in associating that it must follow the 42 months, we must not look previous to around 1790 A.D. That being the case, what great event happened in the last decade of the 18th century. And in that decade, we saw one tremendous event in which the Roman Empire met with a tremendous thing that aided in its collapse, again, religiously. By that time, the Roman Catholic Church basically had entirety its sway over the continent of Europe, not only in terms of the various peoples, but also the rulers. In many instances, would practically worship the Pope in order to gain his influence, and in order to gain the favors that he might grant based on the influence he had from the Vatican and from Rome. However, in 1793, we noticed that perhaps the greatest of the Catholic nations, which was France, came to recognize something interesting. They became so enamored with opposing the Roman Catholic Church that they dramatically caused heartache and split within it. And as such, the Roman Catholic Church would never again have the power, at least in that nation, that it had prior. To make a comment like that one, 
is to recall to our mind this reference to a noisome and grievous sore. An ulcerous sore, if not treated, will of course lead to open and worsening as time goes onward. And here, as week by week passed, beginning in about the middle part of 1793, the French Revolution came to its height. And as such, the Roman Catholic Church suffered mightily and became the first death nail to its ultimate rule over the nation of France. Could that well be then the fulfillment of this, which was the first blow, the first plague, if you will, poured out upon this religious influence? We shall notice that as one other thing is stated in the verse, that certainly could well be the case. For after all, at the bottom of that screen, I ask you to notice with me lessons that you and I, though, might draw. Not lessons now that only were useful in the latter part of the 18th century. What about us? What lesson might there be in that for you and me even today? Here was a religious system that had become corrupt. Though it may have begun in purity the days of Acts chapter 2, as the centuries had rolled by, it bore little resemblance to what one reads about in the Bible. That being noted, do we not see from Romans 11 verse 22, on the one hand, God's gracious goodness, but on the other hand, the severity that's poured out upon those who oppose His will and those who corrupt the things He has made note of? It would certainly seem that that's one dramatic lesson to that event. It might also be fair to remember in Romans 2 verses 6 through 9 that Paul made a dramatic reference to the character of the judgment of God in terms of greatness to those prepared, but in terms of anguish to those who are not. The first element of the falling of that empire, at least in terms of the terrible sway that it once had. But what about the second of these plagues? Found in Revelation 16 verse 3. Again it says, And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. We notice this second angel poured out his vial, and it says a different place now than the first one. Whereas the first is expressly stated to have been the earth, this one is said to be the sea. And in consequence thereof, again, the language indicates it became as the blood of a dead man. Might we recall, or at least note very interestingly, that that might seem to have some degree of correspondence to one of those plagues again to be found in the days of the book of Exodus. For do we not remember that the very first of the ten plagues was the turning of water into blood? Now, as we noted then, it led to a very foul and stinking odor in the land of Egypt. As the things became blood and they were not unable to find water to drink, here it's rather interesting it's said to be on the sea, which would seem to relate to sea water, that is to say salt water. As we consider the various possible meanings, we might again remember the second of the trumpet judgments. For there was a great mountain, we remember from Revelation 8, and that great mountain was cast into the sea, and a third of it was turned into that which was blood. And what's more, we remember that the sea creatures died in Revelation 8, verse 8. There does seem to be a strong relation between that and this one. There again, it helped us appreciate one way in which Rome ultimately fell politically, 
could we be learning here another lesson about the way the religious part, the Catholic Church, might again be oppressed, or at least some of its power removed? He again would turn to the latter part of the 18th century and also the opening part of the 19th. One of the fulfillments that seems so interesting would be to note this one. Shortly after the French Revolution, in fact, very much near its end and on to the days and years afterward, there were some tremendously powerful naval battles between France on the one hand and between England on the other. Now at that time, France had, an, had a navy which was able at least to some degree to compete with ancient England. We typically think of England as being the ruler imperially of the seas. However, ultimately that came to be true firmly and finally following the, these interesting days we're discussing now. As those engagements took place between Rome or between France and England, France was ultimately powerfully crushed on the seas. Her army was, her navy rather, was no match then for, for that of England. For you see, in the final ways in which England made her victory complete, she crushed the ships crushed the various other things, and never again would France be able to compete on the seas. Now, the Roman Catholic influence in that first plague had been dealt a very difficult blow. This one even heightened it. Again, if that be the case, that that was the fulfillment to which this pointed, we notice one more time that that nation, which had arguably been the strongest of the Catholic persuaders, had a second plague poured out upon it. Its power had been reduced. Its influence for the nature of the Pope has now been terribly, terribly weakened. I made some other comments near the bottom of that screen. For as those mighty things took place on that occasion, it does lead us again to wonder what lessons might there be in that for you and for me. For we can be sure that the lessons to be found in Revelation not only were beneficial for that day, but for you and me today as well. I would submit to you that two of the lessons might be to consider again what ultimately befell false religion. It is no secret, of course, that the New Testament makes such often reference to the truth. Jesus, in fact, commanded us to worship in spirit and in truth, John 17. We also remember that in John chapter 4, the nature of that truth is identified. And in John chapter 8, we are told yet again about the character of truth. Later in the New Testament, wasn't it the other writers who reminded us of the fact that the truth of God has gone forward and has been revealed to the human family? Peter, in fact, told us about how awful false doctrine was. If there was no such thing as that which was false, God's warnings are insignificant and unimportant. Do we not learn that the New Testament reminds us, believe not every spirit, 1 John 4 verse 1? There are false teachings and false prophets and those who hold to things that are false. We see what happened to those who did so in these plagues of Revelation 16. Can we not imagine that on the day of judgment it should be even worse? For those who have placed their trust and confidence in that which is false, God shall not wink at it. He shall not pretend that it's all all right. But rather we learned and have so more than once in Revelation that His justice will be poured out. Sincerity in the way that they feel emotionally will make no difference. Have they been obedient to the truth? We notice in Revelation 16 then in regard to that second plague, we're reminded 
Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fail severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Oh, how important it is to continue in his goodness. In light of the third of these plagues, again, the reference is very brief. Verse number four. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the, and I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. As we look at the third of these plagues, we notice again that we would expect them to be referring to some event that weakened or at least removed some of the power associated with the false religion that flowed from the second beast. What would that be? Let us notice again where was the bowl poured out this time. It says it was on the rivers and fountains of water. That would seem to relate to fresh water, some region of earth in which it was known or recognized to be a tremendous source of fresh water. As we consider where that might have been and what event to which that may refer, I would submit that we might begin by again noting some of the references from both the plagues of Exodus and also the trumpet judgments of Revelation 8. Turning back to the Old Testament, isn't it interesting that the first of those plagues again had to do with the removal of the potable water, turning it into blood? Here again, we notice that these became blood in verse 4. It's also to be noted that the third of the trumpet judgments, and we notice so far these seem to be progressing in order. The first of the trumpet judgments, first of the plagues. The second of the trumpet judgments, the second of the plagues. The third of the trumpet judgments, and the third of the plagues. Thus, as we remember, that third trumpet judgment related to, again, water that became as wormwood. And we learned that that wormwood was wood of affliction. It was a tremendously difficult and afflicting time. Here, as we ask what may be the significance in the reference, we again might well look to some region in which the Roman Empire, by virtue of now the Roman Catholic Church, had tremendous influence. Where might that have been? The seat of the influence of the Roman Catholic Church has typically always been in the northern part of the nation of Italy. As one looks to that northern part of that country, you see that it is blessed with many, many rivers. In fact, so blessed in terms of the mountain ranges and the rivers that flow therefrom that it is known as some of the most fertile and some of the best growing parts anywhere in the nation of Europe, in the country, in the continent of Europe. We might well wonder then, in light of the French Revolution and the defeat on the seas, was there any great difficulty, malady, if you will, that came on the Roman Catholic Church in that part of the world? And if so, when did it happen? Again, as I've listed for you, we might again note the last few years of the 18th century. For there, there was tremendous convulsions and upheavals in that particular part of Italy. And again, the power associated with the Roman Catholic Church tremendously reduced in that area as a result of those convulsions and those political situations. As I list them, I have gone ahead and noted for you that fighting, 
with much blood ended up filling those rivers. If that is the event to which these, this discussion refers, it should again remind us that there are lessons in it for us still. Lessons not the least of which is the, the, those found in verses 5 and 6. I'd ask you to again to notice with me the reading. It may almost seem out of place, but oh how important it is. In the other instances so far, when the angel poured out the vial, we really heard nothing said. This time, however, when the angel poured out the vial, John said, I heard the angel of the water say, Thou art righteous, O Lord. This angel did not argue, did not in fact try to justify acting otherwise. He in fact said, You are justified in pouring out this vial in the way that you are and bringing the difficulties upon these waters the way you are. Doesn't that again hint to the vindication of God? His justice is always appropriate and right, and it's always true and noble. So much so that in the next verse it is actually said in that way in verse 7, True and righteous are thy judgments. It is still the case that on the day of judgment no one will be able to successfully accuse God of anything. God has sent His beloved Son to this world, and He paid the way for human salvation. And if anyone chooses to ignore it, it's not God's fault. It's not the Lord's fault. And it's not the fault of the Holy Spirit. It'll be His own fault. And when He thus stands bereft of all the blessings of God for an eternity, He'll have no one to blame but His own stubborn self. For God in His marvelous and majestic power has given to mankind all things that pertain to life and godliness. 2 Peter 1 verse 3. As this angel poured out that, that bowl, that vial, we do also notice in verse 6, For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. Those on whom this was poured out were powerfully persecuting, at least historically, those who were the followers of God. And he ends it by saying, Thou hast given them blood to drink. Hasn't it often been said, in essence, that those who take the sword shall die by the sword? That was true in the Old Testament. And we seem to see a hint of that even here. In light of these first three, it does bring us to the very last one, at least the one we'll discuss lastly tonight. The fourth one mentioned beginning in verse number 8. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire, and men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over the plagues, and they repented not to give him glory. The fourth of these plagues. We notice that the place on which this one was poured out was still different. It wasn't said to be the fresh water, nor the earth, nor in fact the seas. This one was poured out on the sun. Immediately in thinking about the nature of that, we might appreciate that power was given, according to verse 8, to scorch men with fire. And not only that, in verse 9, men were scorched with great heat. Whatever it is that was discussed under the fact of this power was such that that one carried forth with what he was able to do. What was that power? What was the sun that was under discussion? We might again ask about the fulfillment thereof. As we consider the word, the way the word sun is sometimes used in the Bible, it on more than one occasion has reference not to that literal sun, which of course it sometimes does concerning it. 
as for instance in Psalm 19. But it sometimes is used with reference to a particularly powerful and mighty political figure. A person who is called the son as it relates to his power. For example, in Malachi in the Old Testament, there is one reference using that word that refers to a person, and he's called son, S-U-N, not S-O-N. If that be true, then we might be interested in finding or ascertaining what political figure who, in terms of great power, would have the ability to persecute and afflict great numbers of people, for that could be the meaning of the word heat as it's referenced there, and also, we would be interested, though, in noting that whenever this occurred, it would be such that it would have led people to blaspheme, verse number 9, and what's more, they would not have repented even despite the difficulty. Has there been a time frame following 1793 when perhaps that very idea is what was foretold and prophesied? One interesting possibility and the one that seems to fit the best, might well be this one. There was again a French leader, a French ruler. His name was Napoleon. We've probably all heard of him in some way or another. But he was fierce, cruel, and ferocious. He, in fact, held the entirety of the continent at one point under his sway. And in his ruthlessness, he was such that men were persecuted so that if he was that son, they were such that they came to blaspheme even the character of God and because of the oppression. It was indeed tremendously great, tremendously afflicting and persecuting from opening until ending until he was finally defeated. How many thousands, and perhaps some even estimate the number into the millions, were slaughtered by him. If that be the one identified, notice again in verse number 9, that it was God who ultimately, in terms of allowing that power to bring forth these plagues, is such that even men still did not turn back to the truth of God. They refused to repent. We've noted more than once in this book about how awful it is when men lift themselves up and refuse to humbly acquiesce to the nature of the will of God. They prefer to go rather their own way, but that way leads to destruction. That way leads to perdition. That way leads apart from the salvation that God would like them to know and experience. Here we notice that as these repented not to give Him glory, might we remember that Belshazzar was guilty of that. In Daniel the fifth chapter, it was told him, you've been weighed the balances and found wanting because you haven't glorified the God who gave you this power. Napoleon didn't either. May you and I not make that same mistake. May we utilize our talents and our capabilities and our time to bring Him glory and not to run people from Him, not to be that dark light that causes men to not follow the true light of Jesus, John 8, verse 12. Maybe in light of that final lesson then that might be mentioned, the significance of repentance. Luke 13, verses 3 and 5, commanded of us, all of us, not just a few. And on Pentecost, that's the message that Peter preached, repent and be baptized. As you and I think then about what repentance means and how useful it is, might we remember that it means a change of mind that results in a change in action, that powerful willingness to humbly do that which God has commanded. As you and I see that there are many in the world who simply refuse to do that, May you and I not act so unwisely, but may we humbly act in a way that would be pleasing and acceptable in His sight.
we might briefly close our lesson tonight by looking at a picture. That again is a picture, an artist's rendition of those angels carrying those vials or bowls. But as we consider that the seven of them are there, we have looked tonight at the contents of the first four. Another artist's picture as it relates to them would be this. Now this is a picture that has all seven of them already in it, but we've only considered the first four. You'll need to read with me clockwise, starting from the upper right-hand corner. We notice there the difficulties associated with the first and second and third and fourth that we looked at this evening. But as we look at them, may we never forget that that first plague was only poured out and those that received it who had that mark of the beast. When you and I live faithfully to God, we will have His name etched in us, if you will, according to Revelation 14. We will not have the mark of the beast. Tonight, if you are not living faithfully to Him, if you have perhaps been a faithful...